Welcome to Altamar. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. And today on Altamar, Mooney and I will navigate the high seas of Putin's Russia and focus on its growing role in a rocky geopolitical environment, its risky relationship building, and of course, the impact that all that has on the West. Vladimir Putin, without a doubt, a very crafty politician, Peter. He's revived his country's global influence during the past 10 years, standing grandly on the shoulders of very little, an economy the size of Spain with an average GDP mired in economic stagnation. How did he do it? We'll figure out how he did it with Angela Stent, author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, a title which could easily summarize exactly what we want to talk about in this podcast. First, a little context. Remember, Russia is the largest country on earth, living on oil, gas, bluster, and a whole lot of corruption. And Putin, a former KGB agent serving a string of consecutive terms since 2000, credits himself for bringing the country out of economic collapse and essentially rules its country, elites, state institutions, the media, and the military with very little regard for the rule of law. With his nationalistic style, personalistic manner, and his biceps, Putin has strengthened the oligarchy, destroyed institutions, and put an end to any illusion so high after the fall of the Soviet Union of a Western-style democracy in Russia. And his recent cyber laws are not only a scary form of censorship, but risky tools for even further control of individual liberties. The Washington Post recently called it a fortress under siege, where opposition is seen as treason, the legislators a rubber stamper, Dissidents are jailed for disrespect and defectors die under very unusual circumstances. Munia, all of that's true. I, I, I don't want to disagree with any of that. But we also have to acknowledge how Putin consolidates his influence outside his borders through unorthodox, yes, often corrupt, but frequently super effective measures. And Syria and Venezuela are great examples of this. But beyond the geopolitical, this guy has created this ideological facade, which is which is amazing. He, he, he is now all about protecting Christianity, bringing back traditional values, keeping Russia and Europe white. And in this crusade, he positions Russia's long-term interests as a zero-sum game, where the failures of liberals and multiculturals and gays and Muslims, they're all, that's all Russia's victories. And he takes risks and he wins. He's not scared of creating facts on the ground. Look at the major victories in Ukraine with Donbass and Crimea, inserting Russia's military in Syria because of the vacuum partially left by President Obama, his major investment in cyber warfare, which has torn apart the United States. Peter, I read somewhere that Russia is becoming like a 15th century raider, and I really like that metaphor. It doesn't have enough power to wage full-scale land wars, but through a hard-nosed, ruthless realpolitik Russia's raiding the globe for foreign policy victories. It's a hybrid warfare, very crafty, the undermining of Western adversaries at any cost. And look at the successes. They're not doing so badly for the U.S. Russia has become a daily headline and a daily headache. For Europe, it is both financer and publicist of the far-right parties making a comeback in Europe, as well as a supplier of a large share of Europe's energy needs for countries such as Syria, Venezuela, and Cuba. It's a lifesaver for those countries. For China, it's a rival and a sometime ally. And for the rest of the world, it's a total enigma. You're right, Muni. I mean, it's, it's exactly the way you describe it. And it's a huge win for Putin. 30 years after the Cold War, the world is once again polarized between believers of individual rights and those who espouse authoritarian concentrations of power. And if you look at the recent summits between Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, 
it's all been centered on hotspots such as Iran and Venezuela, and it reminds us of Russia's outsized power in a world of global tensions. I mean, how does a country that has a declining demography and, the, as you said, a GDP the size of Spain suddenly become the interlocutor of all of these things with the U.S. Secretary of State? Look, look at Venezuela. It's becoming a proxy battleground as Russia props up dictator Nicolas Maduro with medical supplies, with investments, and, and most importantly, with military weapons. I mean, it just seems that Russia is sending the world a message of geopolitical hardball, thinly disguised as economic assistance. You mentioned Venezuela, Peter, but there's other situations that show the same. And the recent summit between Putin and North Korea's Kim was one really good example. The story was how this was so much more successful than Trump's failed attempts at negotiation with Kim. And there was a lovely photo of them celebrating the success of the summit, which was another win for Putin's opportunistic diplomatic game. And he's saved Syria's president Bashir al-Assad and consolidated Russia's presence in the Middle East and the Mediterranean. He's also wooing the authoritarian Erdogan in Turkey to his side and creating a rift in, a ver in the very, very heart of NATO. And after infiltrating the Ukraine's Donbass region a few weeks ago, Ukrainians seem to have elected a president that's sympathetic to Russia, although that's being revised as we speak. Look, it's not only the Ukraine. In the Balkans, Russia's blatant coup attempt in Montenegro was a failure that didn't work. But since then, Putin has word the Srpska Republic's Dodik and encouraged like the Serbian Orthodox Church to come together. They're, they're creating havoc in Bosnia-Herzegovina. You know, it's all to create all types of tensions right in the heart of Europe and and look it's and we haven't talked about the thing that we talk about in the United States for 40 or 50 years which is Cuba I mean Russia continues to be you know a huge economic lifeline towards Cuba Russia is clearly in an expansionist moment and it has decided that alliances with some of the world's least desirable regimes is the way to expand influence and reach to talk about the impact of all of this let's bring in our guest Mooney Angela Stent is director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies and a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown University. Her academic work focuses on the triangular political and economic relationship between the United States, Russia, and Europe. She was a member of the senior advisory panel for NATO's Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. Welcome to Altamar, Angela Stent. Very good to be on your program. Thank you. So, Dr. Stent, your book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest, underlines new concerns about Russia for the United States and for the rest of the world and for, in particular, for the West. If, as you say, Russia's foreign policy has been consistent over the years, why today should we be more worried? Because even though we've largely had an adversarial relationship with Russia over the decades or a mixed relationship, Russia now has the wherewithal to deploy power and influence in a way that it didn't have in the first decade since the f collapse of the Soviet Union. So Russia is now acting as a disruptor. Uh, in many parts of the world, maybe the latest one being Venezuela. And I think that's why we have to be concerned, because we haven't seen a Russia able to reassert itself really for the last 10 years. What's the secret sauce of its reassertion? It's Putin, I think, is, has very cleverly understood. Well, first of all, Putin had a plan. Uh, ever since he became president in 2000. So he's been at it for 19 years. He wanted to restore Russia as a great power um, after what he sees as the humiliation of the 1990s. 
and he has been very adept at taking advantage of opportunities presented to him by Western indecision, by the United States having red lines, then having no red lines in Syria. So he's uh, he's very good at doing this uh, in a way while we were asleep at the wheel. But l- let me push a little further. I mean, why is Russia so successful today? It's It's not money or largesse like China does. I mean, there is there is no Belt and Road Initiative, which spreads the wealth like China is spreading the wealth. Is there a cultural, religious, something about what Russia stands for today that is somehow successful with some with countries? Well, so Putin puts Russia forward, first of all, as a champion of the conservative international, and he blames the West for being decadent. So he's appealing to a wide variety of countries all around the world that are much more conservative. And then he puts Russia forward as a defender of the status quo, obviously not in its own neighborhood, but in the rest of the world. And so Russia supports any leader who's in power, however they were elected, and is very pragmatic. Uh, Russia presents itself really as a non-ideological country. For instance, in the Middle East, it hasn't chosen sides. It's talking to all sides, whereas the United States has chosen sides in a lot of these disputes. Uh, and so Russia can be present itself as a neutral arbiter. Dr. Stent, what does Russia mean specifically for Europe today? It's a region that's been plagued by nationalist leaders, faces tremendous general challenges like immigration and specific ones like Brexit. And what is the appeal of Putin's to all of these new political parties that have sprouted, especially in Southern Europe? I'm talking about Vox in Spain, Five Star, Lega in Italy mm-hmm. and beyond. So first of all, Russia is an important economic partner for Europe. Europe does get about 30 or 40 percent of its natural gas from Russia. It's an important trading partner for Europe. So that that's one reason why uh, the Europeans have to deal with Russia, however difficult a neighbor it is. And now Putin has really put himself forward as a champion of populist movements and Eurosceptical movements. Putin has never liked the European Union. The European Union's united on sanctions against Russia. He would prefer to have a disunited European Union where they can't keep imposing sanctions on Russia. And therefore, we can see now with the upcoming European Parliament elections, Russia is overtly and maybe not so overtly overtly, supporting most of the extreme right and Eurosceptical groups. And what about the Ukraine, which is also key for Europe? The Zelensky election showed that essentially the pro-Russian guy won, or is it really not that simple? Oh, it's not nearly that simple. I don't think Mr. Zelensky is pro-Russian. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly what his views are. Obviously, he, he won by being a comedian on television. But I, I would say that the relationship between Russia and Ukraine could get more difficult now with his presidency. We see the Russians now trying to give Russian passports to those people living in the part of southeastern Ukraine where there's a war going on. Um, so I don't know what's going to change there, but uh, it's too early to judge what Mr. Zelensky is going to do. Let's talk a little bit about what seems to be a new detente between China and Russia. Mm-hmm. And how does that, how is that going to also affect the United States? So 50 years ago, the Russians and the Chinese were shooting at each other over the border. It's quite remarkable where we've come today. Putin and Xi Jinping call each other their best friends. I should also remind maybe the listeners that what the United States is doing now, which is a dual policy of a trade war with China and rafts of sanctions on Russia, is driving those two countries closer together. But they now have a strategic partnership. They both feel that the world order imposed on them by the United States after the end of the Cold War 
didn't gave them no agency and disadvantaged them, and they're determined to to rectify that. So we see them partnering in a number of places around the world, pushing back against the United States in different ways. And I think we have to take it seriously. I think right now. People in the United States are beginning to understand that the combination of China and Russia working together does represent, you know, a very serious challenge for the U.S. And I want to just come back to this point that you made about our policies seem to be pushing them together. U.S. policies、mm-hmm. seem to be pushing them together. Are you specifically referring to the trade dispute with China? Yes, I am. I think the trade wars with China, and we see this escalating as we speak, and then. All of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia—it's made Russia much more dependent on China economically. And I think, from the Chinese point of view, it's giving it less of a stake in trying to maintain a better relationship with the United States. You mentioned Venezuela, and China and Russia, for sure, are consolidating their power in, in Latin America as a whole as the U.S. kind of retreats. What do you think are the consequences of the influence, specifically of China, in Venezuela, and what the outcome could possibly be? I think it, it makes it very difficult, as we can see, for the United States to hope to, that Mr. Guaido is, in fact, becomes the president, and that Mr. Maduro leaves. Uh, I mean, the Chinese are not doing what the Russians are. The Russians have military personnel there; they have security assistance. The Chinese are much more important economically for Venezuela. But I think with the two of them, it helps Maduro stay in power. And again, it's a disruptive policy, which makes it more difficult for the United States to accomplish what it wants. Let me push again on this. I, I, I think it would help our listeners. To try to understand the specificity、mm-hmm. of Russia's influence, for example, in in whether in Cuba or in Venezuela or in Nicaragua, how much money are they putting in? How much largesse are they giving? How much? Real military aid are they providing?、Right. So Russia is managing to do a lot of this on the cheap.、Um, I don't want to exaggerate. Venezuela owes Russia about seventeen billion dollars, but again, China is much more heavily economically involved in Venezuela.、Uh, the Russians have helped the Venezuelans、uh, with their energy industry, which was really atrophying、um, when Chavez was in power. So they, they've helped bolster that. They have a you know they recently sent about a hundred military specialists, military personnel there. That's not very much. They do obviously interact with the security services there, but I think on the margins they can play a role in helping to bolster Maduro and particularly、uh, the Venezuelan military who supports him. And let me ask just one other: We've taken a little tour of the world on purpose and <laughs> taken advantage of you being with us on the show to understand how Russia interacts with different parts. I mean, we are seeing a ratcheting up of our of tensions with Iran. How、uh, I mean, Iran has a,、mm-hmm. has certainly great interests, and Russia has great interests with Iran. I mean, how do you see that affecting peace in the Middle East? Well, first of all, from the Russian point of view, if the United States were to get into a military conflict with Iran, I think that would be a great boon for Russia, because Russia has really reasserted itself very successfully in the Middle East, talking to all partners. So it has a pretty close relationship with Iran.、They're Working together in Syria, and of course, Russia is still a champion of the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with which from from which the United States has pulled out.、Uh, so that's a pretty close, although not tension-free, relationship. But then Russia also has close ties to all of the major Sunni states, particularly Saudi Arabia and to Israel. So Russia really is the only power there that hasn't chosen sides. And that if the United States does get into a, another military conflict there, you know, Russia will present itself again as a country. That's able, you know, possibly later on to to be a peacemaker. 
You mentioned um, the the phrase "on the cheap." Is this new kind of greater visibility of Russia in the in the past few years, just a, a flexing of the muscles, or is it part of a very strategic expansionist movement around the globe? Putin is not a great strategist, but he's a very good tactician. So he's again he understands you know how to take advantage of these opportunities and spread Russian influence on the cheap. But we should be under no illusions. Uh, you know, Russian per capita GDP is smaller than that of Italy. It has a declining population, so its economy is not doing very well. And even though its its military has been somewhat modernized in the last decade, the United States is much more powerful than Russia. So what we're really seeing is is a country that's very adept, despite its problems, at inserting itself as a disruptor, but without some grand plan. So you mentioned the United States. How does the U.S. that's entering into election season avoid another attack on its institutions in the next elections? Well, we have to have have better defenses and we have to be more proactive. We know that the Russians continue to interfere. They did until the day before the midterm elections in 2018. And we need to up our game in terms also of the social media, figuring out what it is that Russian bots and troll factories are trying to do, because the Russians are not going to stop doing this. We just need to be better at defending ourselves. I love your definition of Russia being a non-ideological defender of whatever status quo there is out there. And, you know, the fact is that a lot of the status quo that is out there and that Russia has become very friendly with is a whole lot of unpleasant sounding authoritarian proxies, whether it's Erdogan, Duterte, Kim, Maduro, Assad. I mean, is this, is this um, tactic, to use your word, of basically going out and making friends with these unpleasant regimes, a, a, something that's long-lasting? I think it'll last as long, certainly, as these people are in power, as long as Putin's in power. I mean, it's possible he's supposed to leave the presidency by 2024. Another Russian leader might re-evaluate that. But for Russia, one of the central issues is it's completely allergic to having the United States and or Europe, you know, tell Russians that they're not democratic and try and shape the domestic situation there. And the most important um, factor for Putin and his colleagues is staying in power and keeping their assets. And if you're a member of a club of autocrats, they're not going to threaten that, whereas the West can. There seems to be a zero-sum game happening. Somehow Putin visualizes that every loss for the West is a success for him. I mean, how do we fix this in the West? I mean, clearly all of our listeners have heard Mooney and I talk over and over again about the segmentation and polarization and fracturing of Western societies this is an issue that we come back to a lot. But how do we, in addition to the, those internal problems, how do we protect against Russia playing us off against each other? Well, the most important thing is unity, uh, as you said. Um, and it's not to, for the United States to challenge the Western alliance, to challenge the NATO alliance, to criticize our allies, our most important European allies, like, like Germany. So we have to start this at home and not, you know, we have to reduce the number of opportunities that are there for Russia to exploit. And we're going the other way at the moment. That's right. We are. And it's, so that's easier said than done. So how do we, internal unity is one thing, but how can can we rally Americans or how can the French rally French to see Russia a little bit clearer for what it is? I mean, I guess that's the purpose of your book, for all of us to understand better what Russia 
is about and what it's doing. Well, I think it would be good if the United States, again, if we're talking about Alliance Solidarity, focused more on discussing these issues with its allies. I mean, previous administrations haven't done very well with that either. I think we we rallied after the annexation of Crimea and the launch of the war in southeastern Ukraine. Then Obama and Merkel were able to get together and really rally the Europeans. But that moment has gone now. Again, it's incumbent upon us. We're not going to change the fundamental view that the current Kremlin has that the West is its number one enemy. So forgive me for putting you on the spot, but is Trump soft on Russia? Uh, The Trump administration is not soft on Russia in terms of its policy so far, such as they are, sanctions. I think Trump wants to make a deal with Russia. We've just seen uh, Secretary Pompeo meet with President Putin, uh, and probably the two presidents will meet at the G8 in June. But again, Trump's hands are tied because of all the congressional legislation that's been passed because of the Russian interference in our elections in 2016. I want to go back before we end it. I have two more questions. To the title of your book, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Can you just summarize who is the rest? So the rest is really, it's India, it's China, South Africa, let's say the members of the BRICS countries. It's much of Asia, much of Latin America, uh, much of Africa now. So countries that view Russia as a large authoritarian country with whose interests are legitimate and with whom they're quite happy to do business, to buy Russian arms, to buy its oil and gas. So it's really the West in this sense is now the outlier there in having this much more critical view of Russia. So with that, is that a tactical economic expansion strategy or do you really envision another Cold War? Well, we're already partly in another Cold War. I mean, again, if you look at Venezuela, you know, the the Russians are there in our backyard because they think we're in their backyard in Ukraine. So there are elements of the Cold War there, the anticipation of adversarial relations. But the U.S. is much stronger than Russia militarily, economically, that China is in there too in a much bigger player. And we don't have this kind of global ideological confrontation that we had before. So it is, if you like, maybe Cold War 2.0. Angela Stent from Georgetown University, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Look, Mooney, I walk away from this interview with a real interest in how she has said that he is a great tactician and a horrible strategist. In particular, you know, questioning whether do you gain Russia's long-term, and underline the word long-term position, do you, do you, fort- do you fortify Russia's long-term position by getting into bed with all of these authoritarian dictators? Is, is Nicolás Maduro going to be there in two years or three years' time? Is Erdogan going to be there in two or three years' time? I mean, these are all these fundamental questions. Is Cuba going to remain a communist authoritarian dictatorship forever? And what will happen to Russia's influence when these governments change? It's going to crumble. I don't know. I think uh, it's reassuring to hear the experts say that he's just a tactician and not a strategist. But what he's doing sounds like a strategy to me. He's essentially uh, meddling very in a very crafty way. And as, as Dr. Stent said, on the cheap in every single continent, not only China, but he's wins in North Korea, many more successes in the Middle East recently, probably than the United States. He's in Africa, Latin America is not just Venezuela, is moving beyond Venezuela into Nicaragua, obviously Cuba. And then this business of kind of supporting these new parties that are breaking up European politics and, and starting this kind of crusade from the south to the north. And I don't think that seems like a very just improvised game. It seems like a strategy to me. But if you compare it to what China is doing, you know, 
that is to me what strategy is all about. You know, really trying to figure out how do we repair our relations with Asia through this, through this new initiative, which they've called the Belt and Road Initiative. And how do you move that even beyond Asia to other countries and certainly to Africa and things like that? It's using money. It's using influence. It has clear requests. It has clear demands of what they want for Chinese foreign policy. That seems to me to be a really thought out strategy. Putin's moves are brilliant. But we had a guest, uh, I don't know, a couple of episodes ago who said that he doesn't play chess, he plays checkers. That's what it seems like. I don't know. I think that obviously I agree with you on China's strategy. It's long term. It's well crafted. It's very well thought out. But in terms of effectiveness and influence, I don't see Chinese uh, politics meddling in Europe. I don't see really any other, well, aside from infrastructure projects in Latin America, there is definitely, it's two different strategies, but I think they're both strategies. Mooney. It may sound like you won this post-episode debate, but it's just because we ran out of time. Thank you for listening to Altamar. See you next time. <laughs>